Hanicon. 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 You're listening to Hanukkah Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukkah Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. In today's episode, we'll hear about the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978 and its effect on tribes. We'll also discuss the connection between cartography and indigeneity and learn the history of an artist who documented the Potawatomi Trail of Death in the late 1830s. Colonizers in the United States government have obstructed the religious rights of indigenous peoples across North America since first contact. Following decades of protests against unfair treatment, President Jimmy Carter signed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act into law on August 11, 1978. Director of Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Cultural Heritage Center, Dr. Kelly Mosteller, spoke to Hanukkah Podcast about its effect 43 years later. ERFA was a law that was passed after quite a bit of, you know, pressure from tribal communities, and there was a lot of debate in Congress about whether it was necessary, um, why it was necessary to have a law specific for Native Americans. CPN reentry and diversionary lead counselor Bert Patatal attended protests organized by the American Indian Movement, a collection of tribal leaders and members that advocated Native rights in the 1960s and 70s. A citizen of the Kiowa tribe of Oklahoma, he felt the law was necessary to allow Indigenous people to connect with their culture, honor elders, and their practices. The Freedom Act in 1978, it's about Indians. It's not about anybody else. You know, it's about what we need to do and we, what we had to do and what the American government helped us do to get it get going again because they had shut us off for so many years. Indigenous peoples took steps to expand their rights throughout the 1960s as civil rights dominated the public consciousness. In 1973, 200 Oglala Lakota and members of AIMS staged the Wounded Knee Occupation in protest of unfulfilled treaty obligations and unfair treatment of natives. Airfo was signed when Patatal was 29 years old. We had to do something at that time because it was only five years after Wounded Knee and the American government had, they didn't have to, but they knew that that wasn't right. That that was our religion. Patatal remembers law enforcement pressuring him and other Kiowa to skip their practices. They didn't want us to do sweat lodge, peyote meetings, or uh, other religious ceremonies. But we did them, and they would watch us across the river. Many Native cultures mark natural spaces or landscapes as sacred places. Dr. Mosseller notes there are differences from man-made churches or cathedrals. It's spaces where our origin stories say we originated as a people. It may be a space where a certain plant grows. It may, and so while it is a sacred space for us, it is a resource to others. Native nations and environmentalists often use ERFA to argue against mining, 
construction of pipelines, and more. The law also deals with sacred objects, for example, eagle feathers and peyote, that multiple tribes use in religious ceremonies. Its broad language attempts to accommodate many indigenous beliefs, Dr. Mosteller said. And I think that's the most frustrating element of it for federal legislators is they want a clear definition. And this is included, this is excluded. And you're dealing with more than 500 nations who have their own definition of what is necessary for their religious practice. Since 2000, Native nations have used ERFA in combination with the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990 to make legal arguments for exceptions on religious grounds. Citizen Potawatomi Nation used them to establish the tribe's eagle aviary in 2012. ERFA also allows for the procurement and use of eagle feathers and their distribution to tribal members for religious purposes. Although arguments regarding indigenous religious freedoms focus on land development, and resource production, Dr. Mosteller sees the potential for a shift to environmental justice as climate change worsens. I truly think that the next few decades is going to be a fight to say that the lack of legislation and the lack of policy to address climate change is truly beginning to impede our ability to practice our religious practices and and sacred traditions. Examples include the flooding of sacred spaces due to rising sea levels, global warming eliminating natural infrastructure such as ice roads, and the loss of environmental conditions needed by certain medicines and plants. ERFA gives us the tools to fight against it, but it does not stop the constant barrage of questioning whether or not these truly should be protected because it's seen as getting in the way of progress. Throughout his life, Patatal witnessed the changing relationships between the U.S. and Native nations. He believes maintaining Native traditions and religious practices stabilizes Indigenous societies in multiple ways. Well, I think that uh, our governments have uh, really come alive because it's about taking care of our elders, taking care of education, doing our ceremonies doing our dances. Paratal encourages members and citizens from every tribe to practice their native traditions every day, even in a small way. Margaret Pierce took one cartography class at the University of Massachusetts and spent the next several decades of her life creating and teaching others the art of map making. I'd always been an outdoors kind of person and also a kind of a pen and ink person. And when I learned cartography, or at the time that I was interested in cartography in college, it wasn't really on computers yet, it was still being taught at pen and ink level, and that really appealed to me. Towards the end of her bachelor's degree, her next steps were unclear. A mentor and teacher helped Pierce prepare for graduate school applications, and she continued to study. She graduated with her doctorate in geography from Clark University in 1998. In high school, she considered a future career in writing. That desire never went away, and cartography allowed her a space to combine the art and technicality of recording geography with storytelling. And I thought it would be more about math 
and measure, which it is. But then I found like, as I started to study it, I learned that it was more about language and about composing a narrative about places. Pierce has worked on many indigenous projects for tribes and Native nations and journalistic publications throughout her years as an independent cartographer. She designed the printed maps, graphs, and infographics for the Land Grab Universities Project, published in 2020 by High Country News. It shows the costs and effects, both monetary and cultural, of the land-grant university system on Native communities across the United States. I feel like, you know, Indigenous our Indigenous geographies, our stories, get stereotyped sometimes as being you know, only about story, but there is, you know, there's so many important narratives, historical narratives for us and present narratives for us to tell that need to be told through number. She also enjoys bringing together the past and present through indigenous languages. One of her most recent projects included creating a map for the University of Maine's Canadian American Center titled Coming Home to Indigenous Place Names in Canada. It marks the anniversary of the Canadian Confederation, and she sought to create a map that celebrated Indigenous sovereignty through language. It shows Inuit and First Nations names for culturally significant places throughout the country that Pierce only labeled in those people's languages. So I basically just started calling and emailing and texting communities in Canada and saying, would you like to contribute place names to this map? And if so, could you please tell me which names you would like to see there? The different languages flow across the map between communities and writing styles, ranging from Roman characters to syllabics. And I didn't try to classify them by language. I didn't try to separate them by time period. Mm -hmm. I see those as colonizing ways of portraying place names. Instead, I look to ways to put them in this uninterrupted dialogue. The maps connect the places through ice and winter roads, as well as conventional highways, and Pierce used them as orienting markers. I saw those roads as really important as a way of conveying that these are real places. They're not from the past. They, they, they come from the past, but they reside in the present. And they are specifically at these places along the roads that people drive on every day. She believes cartography, in particular, lends itself to the representation of indigeneity because the land remains at the center of many societies and traditions. If all of our knowledge is situated and our histories are located at places and we learn by visiting those places and activating them in our memory, activating the learning associated with those places, Cartography allows us to elevate that important structure and place it at the center. Pierce hopes the trend of creating maps for Native nations and Indigenous communities continues. However, her interests span far and wide, covering many subjects she feels, quote, desperate to map in her lifetime. 
more about Margaret Pierce's work online at studio121.net. The Citizen Potawatomi Nation Cultural Heritage Center displays several pieces by English artist George Winter, who chronicled the Potawatomi Trail of Death from northern Indiana to Kansas. His paintings and drawings show both day-to-day activities of Potawatomi as well as governmental relations with the United States. Cultural Heritage Center curator Blake Norton and director Dr. Kelly Mosteller tell us about his life, art, and connection to the tribe. George Winter was born in June of 1809 uh, to an extremely affluent family. He was the youngest of 12 kids. Uh, his father, William, was a very successful merchant in Portsea, England. And because of that success, his father would travel around Europe extensively viewing and collecting fine pieces of art, which he would bring back to the house um, for the children to view, but also educate them on the artists and what they were seeing in the works. Young George took a, to a keen lightning, likeness to this, and he would begin to copy the works uh, doing basic sketches, some uh, small paintings, and things like that. And because of his travels, William befriended many successful artists of the time who would visit the family, um, give impromptu lessons uh, to the children, especially George, which they took a liking to as well because they could see that he was pretty proficient in art. Um, and from that, his skills began to develop more and more uh, to where he was be able to have a fixed portfolio that would prepare him for later in life. At the age of 16, George had to make a, a pretty crucial decision. Uh, he was done with his primary school, and the decision was made that he would move to London with his brother um, and attempt to enroll at the Royal Academy of Art. Um, he was conflicted a little bit because his family had moved to America, specifically Cincinnati. He was very interested in American life, uh, politics, and the environment over there, but also interested in the Native Americans that he would read in the daily newspapers in London. So he decided to move with his brother, spent about five years in London. He applied for the National Academy, but failed to gain admittance. But while he was there, he continued to do study, um, polishing up on his portraiture, oil works, as well as even wood carvings. And at that time, he also had to make a critical decision on whether to continue his education in Paris or to then move to the United States. Uh, he decided to move to the United States, um, centered in Cincinnati. But prior to that, he lived a couple years with his brother, William, in New York. Um, from there, he enrolled at the National Academy of Design and attended that for about three years, where again, he continued to hone his skills but also would do artwork and sell it on the side to, uh, to make a profit to help uh, fund his living. George made the decision to explore the Native Americans that he had found interest in in both England, but also his time in the United States, and understanding that they would soon be removing west to Kansas. Um, he decided to move to Logansport, Indiana, and lucky enough, he found a hotel that was just a short distance away from the Ewing and Walker Trading Post, which was the trading hub for that area. He knew that he would see several subjects and be able to experience native life through the lens of both Potawatomi and Miami that he uh, witnessed there. So he stayed at the Washington Hall Hotel, but then he was also lucky enough to discover that precedence and grievance hearings, specifically for the Potawatomi, were to be held in the hotel. 
And while he stayed there, he befriended Judge John Edmonds, who was presiding over the grievance hearings, and at that point was invited to witness the hearings themselves, but also take in the Wabash Valley with Judge Edmonds uh, to where he could see both the Potawatomi and the Miami in their villages. While he was in Logansport, um, he was specifically asked by government agents to make portraits of specific Potawatomi headmen, the first of which was Iowa. He was a, a young leader. The government considered him to be a war chief. And from the success of that portrait, he began to befriend Iowa and other leaders who also encouraged him to visit them in their villages and to record life there before they had to leave. Uh, so in doing so, he was invited to several villages in the Wabash Valley along the Yellow River, eventually making his way to Kiwane, where a pivotal council was being held to voice grievances and removal negotiations in 1837. The painting that he made at the council that was happening at Kiwane's village is one that we highlight really prominently on the museum floor in the exhibit on our removal. We have an entire wall that we've sort of dedicated to this painting. It is very obvious that George Winter had spent time with these individuals and was not just sort of making a generalized painting of government agents and Native Americans. He was actually doing portraiture. He has other sketches that he did. You know, there are some that are um, depicting ceremonial scenes and social gatherings and dancing and things like that. So when you look through all of his works, you get the feel that he spent enough time that he was trying to sort of learn the social dynamics. It's really fascinating when you're thinking about the decisions that George Winter was making. You want to ask yourself sometimes, like, did he have an opinion about this council? Did he have an opinion about who was right and who was wrong and whether the grievances that these tribal members had were legitimate in his opinion? These are all things that you can sort of wonder and question because George Winter, you know, he made this painting to make money. He made this painting to establish himself as an artist, but whether or not he likes it, it's also a political painting. Sort of being an outsider um, and also being aligned with the officials, the tribesmen were able to tell this right off the bat. Uh, some of them befriended him, like Iowa that we had mentioned before. Um, others had wanted to have nothing to do with him whatsoever. So really he had to kind of be sneaky in ways and collect field sketches from afar, which in a lot of his artwork you can tell that he had done. Many people are in just natural positions. They're not set up in, in some sort of um, specific position that he wanted to do, like a, like a studio work or things like that. So some of the lighting might be a little bit off, so he focuses on other attributes and other details like their clothing or their, some of their facial features if he's able to see it. But many times people were just in a relaxed state and he wanted them to be like that. He was young, you know, I, I think he would have been in his early 20s at this point. But why it is so critical for us is because it does allow us to talk about the historical circumstances that were going on around the, the sketches that he was making in the time that he was making them. He did to make an effort to also sketch some of these social scenes. He was drawing things that he maybe didn't even understand what he was drawing. Um, for example, there's a scene where there's dancing and a ceremonial gathering that's happening, and he has depicted a water drum, and he has depicted other things that are in this composition, but we can look back at them today and realize that certain religious traditions are being carried out. 
So I, I think, personally, the field sketches are just as much or maybe even more interesting than maybe the final composition. It really does capture a, a really great snapshot of what Potawatomi culture and life was like in 1837 when he was sort of milling about among our people, just sketching what he saw. See some of George Winter's work in the Cultural Heritage Center Gallery, Forced from Land and Culture Removal. Visit the museum online at potawatomiheritage.com. It's time for learning language when the CPN Language Department joins us to teach vocabulary, songs, stories, and more. In this segment, Department Director Justin Neely teaches some commands and vocabulary helpful with children around the house. As a father, he uses them with his kids every day. Ah, bonjour, Jayak. I didn't know the language when I was a child. I started learning the language when I was about, about 17 or 18 years old. And some of the things that I do myself that I've done for as long as I can remember is trying to incorporate the language into my daily life. I really think with adult learners, one of the hardest things is to use the language. And really, the more you use it, it just starts to flow out of your, out of your mouth so much easier. But with my own kids, I've got Gotwatso, Penoljea, Knedesak. I have six children. Gotgwesmina, Nianen, Ndanesak. I have one son and five daughters. So when I talk to my kids in the house, like, we don't ever say the word water in our house. We always say, bish, bish water. I never talk about uh, pop. I never say pop in my house. In Potawatomi, it's wishkababo. Wishkababo is literally that sweet drink, and really it could even be used for Kool-Aid, even if you want to, but wishkababo. But I also use more things that, that might even seem kind of complicated. The word for I'm thirsty is nagashkanabagwe. Nagashkanabagwe. Again, sounds like a very massive word, okay? It sounds big. But you say it a few times, nagashkanabagwe. So I'll ask my kids sometimes, I'll go, Are you thirsty? And they'll go, So they'll understand me and then they'll say, Yes, I'm thirsty. And sometimes I'll, I'll, if they want something, I'll make them say it. And I'll say, I want manakwayan, I want to drink a wishkababble. That popper, Nedwindan. I want to drink water. I want to drink some water. And it really helps. I mean, they use those words every night. You know, I tell my kids, you know, for those of you that always want to tell your children you love them and things like that, I always say, get to bonding. Get to bonding means I love you. Get to bonding. And then one day my daughter said, why do I say dad? Nos. And now she's always says, get to bonding, nos. Get to bonding, nos. And then I started saying, instead of just get to bond, I'll say, get to bonding, Donnie. I love you, daughter. Get the bon and Donnie, or get the bon and them is I love you all. Get to bon and them, I love you all. So get to bon and I love you. Get to bon and them, Penoljeak or Nijansuk, my kids, my children. My kids again are very affectionate, so I'll tell them, oh, Jimshin, Jimshin, give me a kiss, Jimshin, or Yakwemishin, give me a hug, Yakwemishin, Dapneshin, pick me up, Dapneshin. Using the language in context really helps kind of lock it in your mind, you know. And this is something anyone really can do. I mean, you can do it on the very most basic level um, where you learn the word for salt, you know, sitag, and, and you start saying, you know, you could even just start with the English too, kind of in first and say, you know, pass me the sitagen or hand me the sitagen. And then as you get comfortable with that word, sitagen, sitagen, you got it kind of locked in your mind. Maybe you want to add mission, give me, 
Mission East Seetagen or Bietnin East Seetagen. Pass me the salt. Bietnin East Seetagen or Nin Motion. Hand me East Seetagen. Nin Motion East Seetagen. Obviously, you want pepper. Waskuk. Waskuk. So now you're like, oh, Seetagen, Waskuk. You know, Bietnin East Seetagen. Mina, Bietnin East Waskuk. Pass me the salt and the pepper. Bietnin, pass me. You might say, you know, Bietnin East Pequesgen. Pass me the bread. Or Bietnin East Mbade. Pass me the butter. Commands are a great way to learn language, I think. We think in English, commands seem so harsh. It's almost like telling me what to do. But it's just, it's just requesting something really important. You know, you act in a respectful way to people. Therefore, you get a respectful way back. Some other things that I use around the house, like whenever it's time to eat, I always say, be a wee snuck, because I have a, a multi-story house. So I'll yell up the stairs, hey, be a wee snuck, be a wee snuck, come eat, be a wee snuck. And then you can use that, and then if they're if they're not eating their food, maybe they're just sitting there, you can just use we snin, eat, we snin. And that's something you hear a lot of times at a lot of these gatherings. You'll hear some uh, an older speaker perhaps pray in the language, and then right after that they'll say, we snuck, everybody eat, we snuck. And other types of words that I use with my kids, not necessarily always in the house, but uh, sometimes uh, my kids love to run around in my house, so I'll tell them, you know, gago muptokan, don't run, gago muptokan, or Gago mapto can don't run inside. Gago mapto can don't run inside. Or if they're all running, you know, gago mapto kak, don't you all run. Gago mapto kak don't you all run in the house. I always end up saying, nasana, nasana, be careful, nasana. Or I'll say, nukshe, nukshe ebmose, and look where you're walking. Nukshe ebmose, and look where you're walking. Um, and nukshe is a great one too. Nukshe is just kind of like a look. It can just kind of draw attention to something like, ah, look over there. Nukshayiba, look over there. Like I always say, whatever. I constantly in English say, whatever. And I'm like, wegwindek, whatever, wegwindek. Another word that I always say in English <laughs> is maybe or perhaps. In fact, it drives my wife crazy. She tells me I never give her a direct answer about anything. So I'll say a lot of like, I'll say, gonna bitch, gonna bitch, eh, maybe, eh, gonna bitch, weak mowing, maybe it's gonna rain. You can also say, quetan for perhaps or maybe, quetan. But yeah, just getting used to saying things like, oh, gajat damn get, it's hot, gajat damn get, or kasinyam get, it's cold, brr, kasinyam get, you know. And you use those every day, and they really will. They'll lock in your mind, and just try to incorporate it in your daily life. The more you can do that, the easier it will become for you. Just do it, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Zhichkan, do it. Aha, yo. For more information and opportunities with language, including self-paced classes, visit cpn.news backslash language. You can find an online dictionary at potawatomidictionary.com, as well as videos on YouTube. There are also Potawatomi courses on the language learning app Memorize. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A. W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech nikanek, bamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.